Case file number 4.11, Crypto Wars, Revenge of the Hackers, observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Ymir, you remember back when DVDs came out? When they came out? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Did you ever replace a lot of, uh, of, of VHSs with DVDs? Uh, I, we, we kept VHSs for quite some time because we were really poor. So DVDs were like, ooh, yeah. I don't, I don't think we had a DVD player for like 10 years after they actually hit the market or something. Since we have this kind of Star Wars theme with our Crypto Wars stuff, do you remember when the first DVD of a Star Wars movie came out? Are you talking the, the re-edited editions? Was it the first one that well, came out on DVD? it turns out, the re-edited editions were not the first Star Wars movies to come out on DVDs. Oh, really? The first Star Wars movie that came out on DVD was The Phantom Menace in 2001, which was oh, okay. after the year 2000 release of The Phantom Menace on Laserdisc. Oh, Laserdisc. Um, the original series, the re-release of the original series, which was hotly anticipated, uh, mm-hmm. It was in 2004. Oh, okay. And that was the re-edited edition, I believe. Yeah, um, and like I think the only one you can get now, unless you pirate it. Yeah, I currently have, because it was a, a Christmas present for me when they came out, the last set of VHS ones that were not uh, rehashed at all. I think they came out in 96 or something like that. That was my introduction to Star Wars when I was a kid, was we got the VHS tapes from my uh, my aunt for Christmas one year. So the title of this one is a riff off the original title of Return of the Jedi. This is Revenge of the Hackers. <laughs> because Return didn't really fit because the hackers, they never left. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. And that, in fact, in a lot of ways, this is like prime time, original old school hackerism um, mm. stuff. So I'm going to start by talking about the DVD system itself. So we now have a digital content, a digital content, the digital video disc, digital versal disc. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to put DRM. In fact, this is one of the first like major digital DRMs. Mm, okay. So it was the content scramble system, CSS, was introduced in 1996 as part of the DVD rollout. It was in it from the beginning. Mm, okay. The content itself is stored as an MPEG-2 on the disc. But in the header portion, there are three keys, the title key, the disk key, and the content key, I believe. So there's a set of keys that are stored on the disk mm-hmm. in a place that you can't write to with a regular DVD burner. Okay. So you can copy all the content with a home DVD burner, but you mm-hmm. don't get the keys, which is why you couldn't make a straight duplication, why you had to rip things. But mm, okay. at that point, ripping was 
only done through commercial software that was licensed by the mm-hmm. DVD CCA, the DVD Copyright Control Association. Okay. Not, it's a not-for-profit organization that was built to license the keys for DVDs to hardware manufacturers, software and, and software um, and software vendors. Right. So they exist to issue those keys and pursue legal action against anybody who violates the DRM. Okay. Okay. So along with this was right around the same time and important to the whole enforcement of all of this is called the wet, the, the legal wet framework that makes all of this happen was your friend in mind, the digital millennium copyright act. <laughs> the DMCA um, mm-hmm. was signed into law in 1996. But the thing about it was that it had to be put in place. We had mm-hmm. already agreed to, to a couple of treaties with the World Intellectual Property Organization a few years prior. Okay. So that all the Digital Millennium Copyright Act did, or at least what a very important component set of components of it, uh, the one, in fact, the ones that we're talking about right now, are going to be talking about today, were mm-hmm. all uh, things that we had to put into law because of treaties we had already signed. Ah, uh-huh, okay. I remember there being a lot of argument at the time by a lot of the folks that were involved in this stuff, uh, or at least the same kind of folks, about the uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Because, I mean, this was kind of the the, the most wild west the, the internet ever was. Right, yeah. And yeah. copying of content had almost no policing. And this was finally a, a real legal framework that made it very possible to, to actually be chased down for copyright violation. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were very worried about that. And felt like it was that information wants to be free, but regardless of how many, however many letters you wrote to your senator, we'd already agreed to the provisions, and so some version of the DMCA was going to happen, kind of regardless. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Part of what it did is also created the takedown system that we know and love today, that allows mm-hmm. a copyright holder to talk to the content person instead of going through the entire legal system in order to create an injunction to bring down information hosted uh, that is hosted on the internet. Yeah. Now it's a fun, just bunch of bots like on YouTube and stuff that are just constantly yeah. doing takedown notices. Something that's, that's kind of big currently is that the artificial intelligence is pretty high on the artificial and maybe not so high on the yeah. intelligence. <laughs> yeah, I was just say that. As a brief aside, one of the things, one of the reasons why the big internet companies can scale the way that they do is because they try and have humans intervene as little as possible. Mm, And because of that, they've allowed for kind of somewhat predictable abuses of automated systems. Yeah. I I know a particular game where somebody just filed a bunch of DCMA or DMCA, sorry, dyslexic, um, (laughs) uh, takedown notices against all content related to the released footage of that was supposed to be used for promotion mm-hmm. for all content creators. And it wasn't the company or somebody that they had licensed to do any of the, their enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. That's the crazy thing to me. It's just like random. Anyone's can just like basically pester a content creator that they don't like. Yeah. Um, but that's not the element that's important to us today. Mm-hmm. Part that's important to us today is title 117 USC 1201. 
the codified anti-circumvention provisions. And this is basically the section that says, you can't get around DRM, that is a violation of the DMCA. Okay. But we have this DVD and we, we, we wanna be able to run it on Linux or make a yeah, backup exactly. copy, which are completely mm. allowable fair use operations and yeah. inextricable from publishing uh, uh, universally readable copies of the, <laughs> of the content. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very hard to, to not have one without the other, which is the yeah, exactly. of, of the entire problem. So like I said, we had DVD players, but we also had software that could read DVDs on Windows, paid for software that, were, that was licensed by the DVD Copyright Control Association. Well, it turns out one of them, the Xing, the Zing DVD player, didn't do a great job at securing itself. I don't know if other players were as bad, if they did a particularly bad job. I actually couldn't find a lot of information about the what they did and why they choose that one over other ones. But right. the making of DCSS as in to un-CSS content um, mm -hmm. was all around using the Xing DVD player, reverse engineering the, the, the CSS algorithm itself, like the mm, description okay. and stuff, and extracting the keys. Ah, okay. They figure all of this by memory scraping this player on a Windows box. Mm. So in September, 1999, the DOD, DVD Speed Ripper, DOD stands for drink or die, um, <laughs> nice. uh, was released. It worked, but there were specific, um, there were specific cases it didn't work on, but they hadn't, they didn't have a complete universal ripper. Mm, okay. And then a, a few weeks later, about a month later, in, in October, on October 6th, 1999, the Masters of Reverse Engineering, more released DCSS. And that was a closed mm. source release. Now, the source code really leaked like a month or so later. Mm, okay. So we had the full source code that was out there. And actually, when the full source code out there, a guy named Derek Folks. F-A-W-C-U-S, looked at the code and learned that his CSS off algorithm that he had published under the GNU public license uh, mm -hmm. earlier during the mad scramble of, uh, of a bunch of folks uh, and the, like the Linux video form and stuff right. to get a DVD reader for Linux working. So he had figured out the CSS off code and he was right. like, hey, you're using my code. It's unattributed. <laughs> what the heck? And the more folks talked with him and they came to an arrangement where it's licensed in DCSS, but not through the GPL. Because mm, okay. the GNU public license has this viral aspect to it that sometimes makes even open sharing can add some complexity to open sharing. There's lots mm. of open source licensing out there that deal with a ton of these issues. And there is a public license for your needs. But maybe it's not always the GPL. <laughs> right, yeah. So with this co source code, we there were a few things that we actually learned that were kind of interesting. So the CSS algorithm uses 40-bit keys. Okay. Remember DES that we said was basically completely shot in 96 or so? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was uh, 56 bits? Yeah. This is 40 <laughs> bits. So. These 40 bits were 
roughly brute forceable by a good PC, a good, a, a, like an upper end PC in 1999 in about a day. Jeez. Now you might say, why would they use such a small algorithm? What were they possibly thinking? Mm-hmm, right. In such a small key space. Um, what were they thinking? They were trying to comply to those ITAR restrictions we talked about in the last episode, ah. which is kind of funny. But the key <laughs> space was so small that it could be brute force. But there was also a, a researcher named Frank Stevenson published a paper in November 1999 that showed that there were some exploits in the way that, that it was practically implemented that mm-hmm. significantly reduced the effectiveness of even those 40 bits. Oh, really? Yeah, there was a correlation attack that enabled key recovery of the keystream seed into the 16th. <laughs> uh, the disk key could be recovered from its hash value with a complexity of 2 to the 25th. And then the mangling of the disk and title keys could be reversed at 2 to the 8th. Jeez. So 256 possibilities. <laughs> so... It wasn't just that they that they got some keys and they figure out the algorithm. In this case, it was even worse because there was no way without significantly changing the implementation, changing the key length entirely, that right, yeah. you couldn't derive all the keys, that you couldn't figure out any key that you needed at any time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And remember, this is a pure hardware system. There's no revocation mechanism in it built into the system. You could probably right. include something in, but at this point, the entire key space is available. <laughs> wow. So basically, DV, the DVD encryption was fundamentally just broken. There's mm-hmm. no coming back from this, and it's in hardware. What do you do? How, how do you come back from it? You kind of don't. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. But that doesn't mean the legal aftermath is done. Again, mm-hmm. we just started with the laws that we're talking about, that, that not only are were they U.S. laws, but there were international treaties that made all of this happen. Right, yeah. If you've heard anything about the story before, you've heard of DVD John. Uh, John Lech, Lech Johansson. And he was 17 when this was released. Um, mm-hmm. He was born in 83. He's just knocking on 40's door right now. Right. And um, his house was raided when he was 17 in the year 2000 in relation to this the thing is he's in norway right and and this is the norwegian national authority for investigation and prosecution of economic and environmental crime a very long name yeah well they've got a nickname in norwegian but Mm -hmm. there's umlauts involved and i'm not even gonna try (laughs) well actually i don't know if now that i'm picturing it in my head i don't think it's umlauts but there there are non um non-roman characters involved and i'm like mm. um okay i'll give i'll give a good swing to a lot of names but sorry guys <laughs> i draw oh, the line yeah. at non-roman characters yeah i guess norwegian probably has like the thorn characters like icelandic mm-hmm. but they have a colloquial name that they're refer- referred to as um <laughs> so during this trial there was a lot of discovery some of the stuff that they found found out was they dug up uh, some irc logs of DVD John, because as is tradition in our podcast, we refer to people by their handle if they have one. DVD John and the two other developers of DCSS. One that goes by MDX and the other goes by The Nomad. Neither of these people have been identified to date. Really? Wow. Yeah. 
The only publicly known person of more is DVD John. Mm, and okay. from some of the things that he that he said over the over the years, this is actually intentional that mm. he would be the public face. So they went through all these chat logs and they found out kind of how the publication happened. They found out about the drink or die implementation mm-hmm. and the nomad went in from the sounds of it. I'm kind of reconstructing based on a bunch of different reports, but right. between the source code he had and the nomad being able to replicate some of the work that they did with the Xing player, he was able to make his own implementation of some parts and apparently grabbing this, the, the CSS off code from Derek Fox. Um, mm, right, right. Um, but together, like the actual code, the Nomad created the, I believe it was the decryptor code, and then the MDX put it together in, term, in, in a full functional package. And then the interface was developed by DVD John. So DVD John didn't have any hand in the actual copyright circumvention. Okay, okay. And so he was actually acquitted on uh, on that basis in 2003. Mm, okay. He didn't actually do the, the circumvention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Norwegian criminal code, and I'm this is a translation, so it's not word for word, but the section mm. of it is that uh, uh, the one who justifies or breaks a letter or closed writing in a similar way that obtains access to the contents or obstructs the access to another's locked hide you know, encrypt, I, I, encrypted item, I would, I would, or, or, uh, or locked yeah. item is punished mm-hmm. by fines uh, and imprisonment. Um, the same applies to anyone who justifi- unjustifiably obtains access to the data or software equipment that is stored or transmitted by electronic or other technical aids. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's, that's the chunk. And he didn't do that. He just did the, the user interface and he's 17. So I think we could reasonably buy that, that even though, after all of this, he's gone on to to a career that has a lot to do with reversing stuff um, yeah, or yeah. otherwise circumventing copyright or well mm-hmm. DRM. I wouldn't say copyright because the intentional use for a lot of the stuff is you own the content, but you want to use it in alternate ways than than what was than what's originally provided to you. Right, you're right, exactly. Which you know was a, is yeah. within your rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's classic failure, fair use. So. In, that t- in 2003, the Norwegian National Authority for Investigation of, of Pro- and Prosecution of Co- Economic and Environmental Crime went back and said, wait, like, this isn't cool. You, you can't just acquit him. And the appeals court <laughs> said, yeah, we can in 2004. So 2004, it was all wrapped up mm. in Norway in the Bortegarding Court of Appeal. So, and I, like I said, DVD John ended up doing a, a few other things related to certain DRM engineering, the Mm. AACS, which was the successor to the CSS algorithm, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And then Apple's AAC format, which was their Mm. encrypted MPEG-3, MPEG-MP4 format that they originally sold before you could get just DRM-free MP3s from places Uh like Amazon. And because originally they had a DRM layer built into selling songs on the internet. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember that. Like, I, I've never been like a big Apple user, but I do remember like friends having like Apple songs that like they couldn't just give it to you. Um, yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah. what it is. So he developed some software that basically allowed you to record, to do the AAC uh, 
decryption and then record straight off of the output, the output stream. Where he's at now is a company called Double Twist, which he founded with Monique uh, Ferrantezos. And they produce software to play and manage um, music basically coming from different source platforms and different end devices, iPhones, Mm. uh, Android, whatever, and, you know, whatever source it comes from. So they're just trying to make a management platform for everything um, that doesn't require you to use whatever your platform wants you to use to to manage your your software or your, your music. So that was the fallout in Norway, but we're not done yet. There were two major cases in the U.S. that were really defined what the DVD-CCA tried to enforce here in the U.S. The two cases were DVD-CCA versus Bunner and Pavlovich versus Superior Court, which was, um, that's the big one, but it was from a previous thing where the DVD-CCA tried to sue Pavlovich and Pavlovich was in Texas. And because Pavlovich was in Texas, there was a whole thing about getting him to California. Okay. Interesting. So right after the DVD, the DCCS um, software was released and the source code was released, there was a big effort by open source advocates, uh, digital rights advocates, cypherpunks, everybody that wanted to be able to, uh, watch their DVD, watch DVDs some other way than through an authorized player, mm-hmm. spread this code far and wide, uh, right, which right. is why the DVD CCA was like, well, heck, we got to sue like <laughs> everybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You nip this in the bud. And the complexity of this is what we were talking about earlier. There's fair use. And there's a question as to like, even if fair use allows for the possibility of somebody violating the copyright, that doesn't necessarily make it criminal to have the software that does that. If you are using the license within the provisions of your license, you'll hear a lot of people argue this stuff on the copyright side, argue this stuff, but the, the right is there. There's a lot of question as to whether or not to how much legal protection you're going to have for implementing your fair use rights on um, mm-hmm. if you re- look right now about anything related to this stuff you will see a big movement called right to repair which yeah, yeah, yeah. talked a little bit about um and it's yeah, all the time that. yeah but it's all of this is tied up into this in to the same digital rights questions as we have here this is in a lot of ways where some of the original ideas of this got challenged and in fact mm-hmm. was we get through the trials themselves, talk a little bit about some of the most important decision, I think, that was made during this process. Okay. So the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the 2600 Club and a lot of other folks advocated for the use of DCSS and the legal support, and they fundraised for legal support of Bunner and Pavlovich and and the other defendants that that started to get named in these things. Mm -hmm. In Bunner, the complaint was for publishing DCSS in violation of the California Civic Code uh, implementing the California Uniform Trade Secrets Act. Wait, is this this is the guy that was in Texas? No, this no, this is the guy before, this is the other guy. Oh, okay, I was gonna say like, how is he violating California law if he's in Texas? So we'll get to him. Okay. In his case, 
He claimed that he had no information to suggest that DCSS contained trade secrets when he posted the code to his website. Mm. But by the end of that, um, the code had been out all over the place. Right. So the argument that the EFF, well, that Bunner's side made, and I, I, the EFF supported Bunner in this, is that code is speech, that code is protected by the First Amendment. The okay. DVD CCA argued that code is just a functional component, and it is not expression, and therefore should not be treated as speech and is consequently subject to a different standard in terms of freedom of dissemination. Mm, okay. The judge upheld that code is speech and ordered the DVD CCA to, to pay Bunner's legal costs. And Bunner's side further argued that because the code of DCSS was so widely disseminated, it was no longer secret and didn't qualify as a trade secret anymore, which was also upheld. Damn, okay, awesome. So there's two pieces of this. One of them is the first, which is that code is speech. And I think mm -hmm. that that is a very defensible thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. The other side of this, that once it's widely discriminated enough, it's no longer enforced, things are no longer enforceable. Mm -hmm. I think that that is less robust. And as much as I, DRM and copyright are really tangled in my mind. Mm -hmm. I can see where one, where, where DRM should have some level of existence. And frankly, at this point where we're streaming everything, whether or not you have a right to a thing that you bought has, means a lot less because you have to pay for every access either by getting an access license for that particular time you are streaming it or having a service subscription. It's not a matter yeah. of, of having a copy of it anymore. Yeah, I think um, like the the concept of DRM to me is not like that big of a deal. I think it's the implementation and like you know yeah. how this affected games. Well, I guess part of my overarching problem is that over the years, the length of the effective copyright has gotten longer and longer, and this has happened because the number of companies that control copyrights of various kinds, whether they mm -hmm. are music or movies or even books, is getting smaller and smaller. They've extended the copyright, but, but the proceeds of that don't go to the original creator. They go to the large organizations that have acted as publishers. Uh, yeah. So while I concede that an intellectual property system is probably desirable, the fact is that it underpins a system that it continues to make the powerful more powerful and, and allows the consumer to basically be increasingly screwed. Again, going back to right repair, right to repair. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. I have, like you, you touched on the, the whole streaming movies and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And well, I think it's completely getting out of hand at this point, especially with the, the whole capital capitalism agenda of, gotta grow, gotta grow, gotta grow. So like Netflix just got hit with, you know, losing X amount of subscribers and like the freaking out and everything. So a lot of the copyright animosity from me comes in terms of gaming. And I think that's mostly due to like, you know, they've moved on to like uh, PlayStation Plus and Xbox uh, Pass and everything, which are awesome services for getting these games. 
and I'm I'm glad that there's still physical media. Um, my worry is that in the future, when there's no physical media, like what rights do you have to the game? Because they could just turn off the servers and be like, you don't have this game anymore. Yeah, well, I've seen that certain games where the servers have basically been turned off. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. But uh, there's also, to me, in the original world of copyright, books could continue to be published. In fact, a lot of books from before the 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 infinite copyright, I forget what the date is, but basically works before that are public domain and works after it basically aren't. Yeah, yeah. They continue to be published, but there's some games that I played in the 90s that I would love to play. And mm-hmm. you can't get a copy of them. I, you can try and eBay a copy or something, but like the fact is that the combination of DRM and lack of support makes it very hard to replay those games. And that's just lost content. Yeah, it, it's a shame. Like jumping to my mind is Final Fantasy Tactics and Xenogears. Mm-hmm. For a 10 year period, if you even found a copy of those on eBay, they were going for like $900. Because, like, you know, you couldn't copy them. Like, eventually they did start mm-hmm. redistributing them, thankfully. But otherwise, it's kind of like, well, crap. Yeah. So back to our, back to our story, because I, I knew <laughs> I, had, I had one more page of, of uh, outline than I usually do. So, I, like, this could go long, and I don't, <laughs> don't want to go, like, an hour plus. Yeah. Um, so that's what came out of the Bunner case. Basically, Bunner was acquitted because he didn't know that there were trade secrets in it. Mm-hmm. And then there, they weren't trade secrets anymore. Pavlovich is a little different because he ran the Linux vid forum out of his dorm room in California. At the time. Oh, okay. And by the time they went to charge him, he had moved to Texas. Mm, okay. Now, eventually this was decided... In the court's opinion, they declared that Matt Pavlovich didn't expressly know he targeted California or meant to do them injury. Um, and the statute that for the Superior Court to charge somebody outside of the state was you had to target somebody in the state, essentially. Mm, okay. And so they acquitted him on that. And there was a dissenting opinion that basically said, come on, man, you know Hollywood's in California, man, right? Right? <laughs> To paraphrase. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in both of those cases, probably the Pavlovich case more than the Bunner case, I think it's good overall that they were decided the way that they were decided, but I don't think mm. the arguments were very strong. And it's important for us to acknowledge that for the next time a similar situation comes around, because right, yeah. getting lucky with the judge is not a strategy. Luck is not no. a strategy. Like, you don't want to go into court and be like, I'm going to roll the dice. That is the last thing you want to do. So DVD was broken because of implementation. The implementation was flawed because of laws. And the community, more or less, got away with it. Right, right. But the MPAA in 2007 tried again. So you remember we had the HD DVD and the Blu-ray runoff, right? Right, yeah. yeah. Well, both of them had new and improved CSS system called AACS, the Advanced Access Content System. Mm. And it had, like the DVD CCA, had 
the AACS license administrator, which is again, another a not-for-profit that has the mission of giving out of uh, selling licenses and then prosecuting people who mess with the licenses. Right, yeah. So in 2006, somebody who went by Muselix64 published on the Doom 9 forum, uh, a utility called Backup HTDVD, which was the code that was used to perform the encryption or the decryption, but didn't contain any keys. Unlike DCSS, the keys were not in it, just an implementation of the algorithm for the situation in which the it, it was implemented, okay? Mm -hmm. So like distinctly different from both a technological and legal perspective. Mm -hmm. right. If you had a licensed key, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to use that code. Yeah. Now, the thing was that we have the same kind of situation as we did with the DVD code or with the DVD software players. If you peek into memory, you may be able to find the keys. Right. And Music 64 basically said, if you look at maybe, you know, this kind of thing, maybe you'll find the key. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't actually transmit the key. Mm. Now, like we were saying, unlike the CSS algorithm, the AACS had a revocation mechanism. They could take a key that was disclosed and cancel it. Mm, but okay. they could only do that because it, this is not, we're not talking about smart players at this point. They could only do that by putting revoked key uh, as a revoked key into subsequently produce players. Oh, okay. So if you have the old one, you're... Right. Hmm. So AACS uses a 128-bit key. So actually strong encryption. Mm -hmm. And several people were, be able, were able to derive from WinDVD, widely distributed software for playing HDDVDs, right. what is known as the 09F9 key. It's okay. a 128-bit key, but that's what people generally refer to it as. And on January 13th, a riddle was posted to Pastebin that was solved by entering terms into Google, taking the result and converting that into hex. And then you've got the 128-bit key that you can okay. use uh, the backup HD DVD to decrypt your HD DVDs and Blu-ray DVDs. The very Batman-esque. Riddle me this Batman. <laughs> <laughs> So the ACCS issued Digital Millennium Copyright Act, DMCA, violation notices to a whole bunch of websites in the U.S. Mm. But the one that really made a mark was DIG. DIG is a news aggregation site that was big. Oh, I remember DIG, yeah. Yeah, well, there's, it turns out that there's still a website there. They still use the same logo and everything. I didn't do any research, but I remember oh. when they were, when it was like them and Reddit. That were, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were both competing. Like I eventually, like yeah. I hopped off the dig to Reddit, but yeah. So the dig administrators started taking down uh, any posts that were, that had the key in it or were related to the key, alluded to where you could find the key. They, okay. And they started closing accounts uh, and the community responded. How do you think that they responded? Probably like pretty like pacifist. Yeah, but what they did was that they posted the key like and flooded the board with posting the keys, anti MPAA screeds and stuff like that. That uh, is just, very much like the Streisand effect. Yes, in fact, uh, one of the sources I was looking at 
directly like, compared this to the Streisand effect. Mm-hmm. They said, yeah. like, this is an example of the Streisand effect. And, like, it completely flooded the server to drown out anything else on the site. <laughs> so, eventually, the DVD, or the, sorry, the DIG administrators reverse course, and they said, and, and, and the quote from the source was, but now, after seeing hundreds of stories and reading thousands of comments, you've made it clear. You'd rather see DIG go down fighting than bow to a bigger company. We hear you and effective immediately. Well, we won't delete stories or comments containing the code and we'll deal with whatever the consequences might be. Okay. okay. I don't know what their choices were at that point. Yeah. It's very true. They kind of were between a rock and a hard place, but yeah. I mean, anything like that is based on its community and they were fighting with a, with a peer for, for mindshare. God, I hate that word. Um, <laughs> it's like, Oh no. Oh no. That's the right word to use. Ick. Yeah. Um, so this is another situation where because of the Streisand effect, because of how widely disseminated a key was, going after it was futile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is one of those things. It's not luck isn't a strategy, but it's not that far off. Essentially, this kind of circumvention only works if A, we can get things reverse engineered to the point where we have reproducible. Uh, a reproducible defeat of it, but Mm -hmm. it has to be distributed widely enough that it can't be taken down by any reasonable means. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And given the evolution of the way the internet has worked and how things have, in a lot of ways, consolidated to a very few sites that everybody goes to, everybody Mm -hmm. in in air quotes, I think that's actually a lot harder than it was 10 years ago. Or 15 years ago, which is closer to yeah, 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 that is very true. Again, the Streisand effect might not be a strategy. Hmm. Like luck is not a strategy. Hype might not be a strategy. Yeah, yeah. We might need actual decisions and real legal protections to get where we want to go in terms of our rights to intellectual property and our own property, because. The thing about right to repair is increasingly our actual physical property is defined essentially by software. Yeah. And more importantly, the the next generation of DRM after this is online check-in, online control. It's funny, like slight slight tangent, but as I've been like shopping for uh, an EV, Mm -hmm. it's amazing to see the similarities between EVs and video games where there might be a bug or something and people are like oh they'll, they'll patch it later and it's like okay so we're going down the same route as video games where like you know cyberpunk gets released this buggy horrible state and people are like i oh, just wait for the, the first patch like yeah don't worry don't worry it's fine from a market dynamic point of view they might have they might be in a somewhat better position because with video games if you have a bad release you have a bad launch you can the most important time in most video games AAA titles certainly is Mm -hmm. getting that user base at the very beginning because the more we have active play with other people, the more everybody wants to play together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And with the EVs, they don't have as much of a time criticality at immediate launch as uh, as video games do. Especially right now with the market. Yeah, Yeah, well, (laughs) um, one hopes that that's going to tone down soon, but... That's its own little ball of uh, of crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that was the Crypto Wars 3, 
Revenge of the Hackers. And we go on to, uh, to Crypto Wars Part 4, The Phantom Menace, next. <laughs> awesome. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.